This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And Jason, this is a very special issue. It's the new economy issue, and it's really looking at the drivers and the disruptors uh, of the global economy. So it really just sets you into all of the trends and stories you need to know about. It's a primer for a big event mm-hmm. coming up later on this month. It's the second annual New Economy Forum. It's going to be held in in Beijing, a gathering of world leaders, of business leaders, really in the business of problem solving. So we have all of that to cover this week. Also, we have a couple of stories we've got to point out, including one on Christine Lagarde. She takes the reins this week at the European Central Bank. We'll hear what that means for the central bank. She's going to be a different type of head. She brings different skills to that job. Exit Draghi, enter Lagarde. (laughs) Couldn't have two different people cast in this role in a lot of ways. Eager to see what she makes of this job. And you better dress right. That's right. Very good point. First up, though, we speak with the editor of the special issue, Christina Lindblad. She oversaw all of it, really stitched together what's happening in this new economy and how she put it all together. I think about this this issue all year long. It's it's a great repository of stories that we might not be able to do the, the rest of the year because we have you know certain sections and they don't some of these issues don't fit very well within those sections. Well, and speaking of repositories, plastics. Yeah, uh, plastics. We're not talking about credit cards here. We're talking about mm-hmm. actual plastic being used to pay for things. Wait, what? The plastic bank is a, um, a project that started with this uh, entrepreneur in Vancouver, and the first one opened in Haiti. And we visited one in Bali, in Indonesia, that opened recently. And basically, the idea is to make plastic worth something and that give people an incentive to not throw it out. So um, basically, uh, we talked to people there who, you know, supplement their income by collecting plastic and redeeming it at the plastic bank. The plastic bank had IBM built them a sort of like uh, e-wallet app that like people can use to track their income and their savings. They can also use those, uh, those credits that they have and redeem them at certain stores. So, for example, somebody can earn like $7 a month. That does not seem to sound like a lot in the United States, but Indonesia is a country where GDP per capita is only 3000 something dollars a year. How, isn't it fascinating? It's just kind of, it sounds like such a simple solution to what's kind of a big problem, giving people kind of a financial identity as well as solving a pollution problem. That's right, because I mean, the idea is also that they're almost like, these countries have a huge number of unbanked people, and so this is basically training people in the idea of like, what are savings, you know, like this, we could talk to one guy who used to say, I used to go out and spend all the money like I got, because he used to go to a recycling center and redeem uh, the plastic and just get paid you know, right there, but now he sort of has an incentive to save it up. Another big story that uh, is in the magazine and looking at it from a global perspective is immigration. And what I love about this story, there's been such a pushback against uh, immigration by so many different countries around the world, and yet a lot of countries need it because they need workers. Well, this is a project that I desperately wanted to do, and this is an example of something that would have been sort of where do we address this. Yeah. But 
I, I thought we have one of the sections of the issue is governance. And I thought, what is something that, that needs really good policy? And it's sort of this movement of people, which has become such a hot political issue. But it really, it's, it's imperative for certain economies to keep, you know, it, to keep immigration alive as a, as a, you know, as a necessity, right? So it's like, how do you make it work for you? So we looked at three different examples. And I think Canada... Uh, is one of the most interesting because it has this system that takes in economic migrants, so not political asylum seekers or anything else. But So if you're applying as an economic um, migrant, Canada, you're going to get scored on several criteria. One is your skills, your education, your past work uh, perf- uh, not performance, I'm sorry, your, your, like your resume, what kind of jobs you've had. Uh, language, so the national languages of Canada, so French and English, and that score is going to determine basically whether you'll being you're going to be offered permanent residency. And other other countries are looking at this program, right? Yes. So New Zealand and Australia have already adopted it. Their programs are modeled on on Canada's. And the U.S. There's two legislators, two Republican legislators, who have uh, proposed it as part of a, a big reform mm. in immigration. And what's cool about that story, and people should definitely check it out, is mm-hmm. you sort of give it some sweet, but then you have some personal examples as well. Let's talk about climate, because we talk about it here a lot right. at Bloomberg. There's a whole effort in the newsroom. You look at it through one river. Tell us about right. that. Right. So we went to um, a river that runs through several countries in southern Africa, and we chose southern Africa because it's one of the most vulnerable places in terms of um, basically people and governments do not have the money to spend in mitigation. So we looked at in this river, the Zambezi, which starts in Zambia and winds all the way down to Mozambique. The, the interesting thing is in the north, the problem has been drought. And in the south, there have been two floods and cyclones. So it's basically the story of wacky weather and how it plays out for these communities along the river. These are important issues and these are global issues and you guys tackle it so well in the magazine. Christina, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Our economics editor, uh, Christina Lindblad, overseeing the economic and really this issue. And that's Christina Lindblad. You know, she's a frequent guest of ours, frequent collaborator in many ways. And this was a tough assignment, I think, because how do you really get your arms around this new economy? Right. And she just and she looked at so many of the important issues that will be facing the global economy in 2020. Love checking in with her. In late November, Bloomberg will host the second annual New Economy Forum in Beijing. It was established in 2018 by Mike Bloomberg, of course, the founder of Bloomberg LP, home to Bloomberg Businessweek, Bloomberg TV, and radio. And here to tell us more is Andy Brown. He is the editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, a frequent guest, a weekly guest on our daily radio show, Bloomberg Businessweek. So we get a chance to chat with him all the time, but it felt necessary and important Mm -hmm. to have him set the stage for this big event that's coming up. So, Andy, help us understand why now, why there, and what people can expect to see. You know, the big narrative behind the New Economy Forum is the reality of a global economy in the throes of profound, wrenching, and highly disruptive change. And by and large, this change is being botched by global institutions, national governments, global leaders. And 
We believe that it is crucially important to put businesses in a room together with governments to start talking about these issues um, that are threatening to pull apart the global economy. Public-private partnerships or discussions. Exactly. So the starting point is to get the right groups of people together uh, and then to curate conversations in a way which will produce results. We want productive conversations. How fortuitous that you're in Beijing. Considering the backdrop, like Jason and I have been talking about this with everything that's been going on, but specifically with U.S. and China, but just everybody focused on China right now. It's highly symbolic that we're in Asia. We launched the event in, in Singapore last year. This is the second year we're going to be in, in Beijing. We talk about transitions. Of course, the biggest transition in the world today is the shift in wealth and power mm-hmm. from the globalized global north of the planet, uh, from the west of the planet uh, to the east. And so we felt it was really important to host this conversation uh, in a part of of the economy, the global economy, which is, you know, really going to be the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Asia, Middle East, Africa, uh, this is where the global growth is coming Mm -hmm. from. And getting that relationship right between the old economy focused on, you know, uh, the industrialized north uh, and the emerging economies of the global south is critical. We talk about the global economy, and yet we have spent a lot of time with you talking about decoupling. And, mm-hmm. and that certainly is part of the backdrop here amid not just the ongoing trade discussions, but the day-to-day decisions that companies are making about their supply chains, about where their customers are, how they're going to even manufacture their products. Help feather that into some of the discussions you plan to have. We're looking, again, we're looking at transitions. and we, 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 We're stumbling towards global catastrophe in a number of areas. I mean, uh, climate, obviously, but not just climate. Um, the global trading system is falling apart. Uh, global central banks have run out of ammunition to fight the next financial crisis. You mentioned US-China. Uh, these two countries have failed to invent uh, a new form or a new foundation um, for a relationship that once seemed so perfectly symmetrical. Right. You know, and with a China that's all grown up now, and it's all and it's or, all grown up, and yeah. and 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 this symmetrical uh, relationship, you know, America invented, China innovated, um, you know, uh, America uh, consumed, China produced. I mean, it all fit together so well; it was complementary, and it is now fundamentally competitive. Both countries are going after the same thing, which is dominance in the industries of the future: artificial intelligence, quantum computing robotics. The problem is that these areas are all of them dual use, civilian military. And so their economic competition bleeds into security and military competition. They need to figure out a new way of managing this competition. This is one of the conversations, a critical conversation that we're going to be having at New Economy. Well, and what's interesting is, and and maybe this is being too clever by half, but it feels like there's a difference between being competitive and adversarial in a lot of ways. And you do wonder from the headlines and the rhetoric, even just what we've heard recently from Vice President Mike Pence, as to whether the tone has shifted in a meaningful and maybe not permanent, but certainly secular versus cyclical. Well, well, you mentioned Mike Pence. I mean, he he gave this storming speech uh, this time last year um, where he 
essentially labeled China an adversary of the United States. And he took China to task over everything from human rights to the way it rips off, um, you know, uh, American IP, uh, forces technology transfer. Uh, and so the Chinese read this not inaccurately as the first shots in a Cold War. Um, so this, comp- this relationship, yes, is moving definitely towards an adversarial one. Uh, and, 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 and really, it could veer completely out of control. We're right, we're right on the cusp now. Uh, the, the, the two sides, and the, the, I mean, this is, this is the sort of the proximate background to the New Economy Forum, where you had this, this trade war, which looked as though it was going to rage completely out of control, mm-hmm. uh, uh, damaging both the US economy, the Chinese economy, and the whole global economy. I mean, you know, the, the global economy really is right on the cusp of, of recession now. Mm-hmm. The IMF keep lowering their, their forecasts for, for, for global growth. We have a truce. Okay, that that it, it it seems as though we're going to have a truce, uh, a mini trade deal. The purpose of which is not to fix all of the problems, which you can't do, uh, but is to prevent things from getting any worse. What's the goal? What do you hope that by the end of the new economy forum that countries, companies, what the next steps that they might take? The substance of our discussion. You see, we we. Um, we, we, we look at the global economy in, in, in pillars, right? So trade, mm-hmm. finance and investment, technology, urbanization, inclusion. And we look at each of these as a series of, of transitions. So if you take technology, obviously we're moving from a 4G world to a 5G world, mm-hmm. which will power all the industries of the future. Now, you know, that, that is accompanied by huge geopolitical tensions between the US and China focused on the Chinese gear company. Right. Huawei. Um, So the the substance of our conversation, including climate, um, you know, is is uh, uh, what are the institutions? What are the policies? What are the norms, standards, you know, rules that that we need to manage this these transitions uh, in a more rational and a less adversarial way. That's Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. And Jason, we're lucky we get to check in with him every week on our daily radio show. And, you know, his vantage point, having lived overseas in Asia, it's really been um, so notable and so important, especially when we've been talking a lot about U.S.-China trade. But this is his issue. Well, that's exactly right. And what I love about him is when we sort of get stuck ourselves trying to understand what are the nuances of Hong Kong. Hong Kong protests. What are the nuances of this trade war? He really delivers for us. This week, Christine Lagarde takes over as the president of the European Central Bank. It's first female president. She inherits a few things and also brings with her a different skill set than many of her predecessors, Jason. This is a really important story because I think it's going to set the tone in many ways for Mm -hmm. what the European economy looks like. Right. But also, this is one of the best known leaders, financial leaders uh, in the world. Jana Rando joins us from Frankfurt. She's got the story on Madame Christine Lagarde. So tell us what Madame Lagarde is looking at as she takes this new big job. She has a lot of challenges um, to tackle. She takes over the ECB at a time when the economy is not doing really well. We're in a slowdown. Uh, Germany, the largest economy in the region, probably is already in recession. Inflation is very low. Um, Monetary policy at the ECB is very expansionary. And there is quite a big rift in the governing council as to... uh, what could be done 
uh, as to the policies uh, that are needed uh, to overcome the situation. There was a big debate over the last stimulus push, and she comes in at a time uh, when all that needs to be fixed. Well, and there's frustration, right, among the ECB policymakers about what the ECP, ECB excuse me, is doing and versus what policymakers in the region are doing, or should I say, not doing to help out the economies. Yeah, policymakers at the ECB have really stepped up their call on governments to do their part to use fiscal space, to, to uh, implement fiscal stimulus where they have room to do so, to implement structural reforms, to boost growth potential in the region. And so far, governments have taken very small steps toward that. They have signaled their willingness also in Germany, but not nearly enough as some of those policymakers would like to see. I think one of the things that I'm interested in, and I think, Jason, we've, you know, very often here at Bloomberg talked with um, Christine Lagarde. She's going to be a different type of leader and her priorities are going to be different. And she's also not someone, right, who's an economist that comes to this job, Jason. No, and I think we talked about her appearance on 60 Minutes here yeah. in the United States a couple weekends ago and just sort of the tone that she's mm-hmm. going to set. And if you were to cast two people You couldn't get more different in many ways uh, than Mario Draghi and Christine Lagarde. How is that stylistic difference going to play through, Jana? I think she comes at a time when um, her skills are desperately needed. She's a very good communicator. She knows how to reach out to the people, how to talk to the people, uh, which is something that Mario Draghi, uh, despite all his economic brilliance, hasn't really done uh, a lot over the past couple of years. So... um, to come in now and to, to go out to the public and explain why that monetary policy, that expansionary monetary policy that reduces interest on savings is needed. That is very important. She's also very interested in, in social changes and mm-hmm. climate change, uh, all those issues that are at the heart uh, of the debate at the, mom- uh, at the moment. So we can expect uh, to hear from her on those issues as well. Um, Mario Draghi, on the other hand, a stellar uh, economist uh, with, with impeccable training, um, that is something that she doesn't have, but she can f- rely on, on the ECB staff, and she has a lot of experts there as well. Well, and it's so interesting that you talk about her experience and her experience versus Draghi's, and, and I think two things come to mind. One is she's been in the belly of the beast, as it were, <laughs> in Washington, uh, but also at the IMF, very concerned with developing economies as well as developed economies, of course. What is her latest job, her previous job, I should say, going to help her bring in terms of her scope of the world? She's used to dealing with people from a lot of different backgrounds, as you mentioned, emerging markets, developed nations, um, political leaders, economists, financial leaders, um, and, and all that experience she brings to the ECB, where you have just policymakers, but also from very different backgrounds. If you think about uh, policymakers from Germany, Jens Weidmann, who is a very uh, traditional uh, conservative um, official, where you have uh, people from from the southern states, uh, from Greece, Italy, uh, which prefer a generally looser monetary policy, uh, have different views on on, uh, fiscal policy as well. Uh, So it's a very diverse crowd at the ECB, which is why we see some of the problems, some of the arguments uh, play out in the public. And I think she will will bring her skills to the table and will be able to forge a compromise there. And that's Jana Randall joining us from Frankfurt. I loved this story because Christine Lagarde, in many ways, there's not many... Many people who are 
better documented as a world leader mm-hmm. uh, than Christine Lagarde because she has been such a prominent woman on the financial landscape. Everybody's written about her, talked about her, but I really felt like there were some new insights here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's great. It's not only what she's done professionally, but some insight into who she is as a person. And I love that she's not trained as an economist. She's doesn't have central bank experience. She hates math. So this is going to be a different European central bank. Bloomberg will host the new economy forum in a few weeks in Beijing. To coincide with that, our Bloomberg economics team came up with the new economy drivers and disruptors report. Jason, it takes a look at all the new forces that are narrowing the path to development, and it's really going to determine the winners and losers going forward. I love digging into this because there are some nice graphics that really help you understand the size and scope, some nice narrative as well. Tom Orlick is the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us from Washington. He helped put all of this together. Tom, help us understand the framework, because that sort of sets the stage for all of the conversations going forward. The way we think about this is is something like this. Um, Imagine uh, an economy which is doing everything right. They're innovative. They've got a skilled workforce. They have an efficient government. Um, Now imagine there's a huge meteor hurtling towards that country at a thousand miles an hour. And when it hits, it's going to wipe the country off the map. Um, Well, a traditional economic index, a traditional competitiveness index would tell you that country is doing just great. They're going to be great now. They're great in 10 years time. They're great in 20 years time. What our drivers and disruptors report tries to do is tell you about the meteor tell you about the big risks out there in the global economy uh, and which countries are well positioned in relation to those risks and which countries, which economies face some challenges. Uh, And the big meteors we're looking at um, are uh, protectionism, populism, automation, the rise of the robots, uh, digitization, uh, and of course, the big challenge, climate change. What I love, Tom, too, is how comprehensive it is. You just mentioned some of the the big disruptors that you're looking at, but you also looked at 114 economies, essentially 90%, excuse me, 98%, so almost all of the global GDP. So you really looked at the world, developed and developing. Yeah, that's right. One of the striking takeaways is the difference between uh, how well-positioned advanced economies are um, and some of the challenges which lower and middle income countries, lower and middle income economies face. Um, the big narrative on the global economy in the last 50 years uh, has been a story of catching up. Uh, first Japan, then Korea, then China, catching up to income levels, uh, which we see in Europe and the US, um, mainly by exporting. Um, And what our analysis tells us is that with some of the disruptive forces sweeping the global economy, things like protectionism, things like automation with robots able to do more and more of the low skill, low cost jobs, which have been an advantage for low cost economies in the past, that path to development, which low income countries have followed, is not broken but it's just going to be much harder to follow. Well, and this is what I love. This whole idea of catching up is harder to do in this environment today. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, let's think about the, the big forces uh, that have propelled catching up in the past. Um, so there's low incomes or low cost wages. Um, and there's the big open global economy. 
Um, and there's policymakers who are willing to make the difficult, sometimes painful reforms to align economies for growth. Um, and across each of those, the disruptive forces that we're tracking are going to make life more difficult. You've got robots which can do more and more of the tasks which people currently do in factories um, and do them at lower and lower cost. So that erodes the low cost advantage, which was so powerful for, for China and Korea and Japan. Um, then we've got protectionism. Japan, Korea, uh, China, they grew in part because they could tap those free, open global markets. Um, but now we've got this decisive swing towards protectionism. And so tapping global markets uh, is harder to do. All right. So, Tom, you're going to be there in Beijing. Let's talk about China because it's very prominent in your reporting. Clearly one of the world's most important economies. This idea of the meteor uh, headed toward Earth. Clearly, China figures very, very importantly in this narrative. How does China fit into this? So China's a really interesting story, Jason. Um, on the traditional drivers of development, China really outperforms. Uh, they're the fourth ranked economy uh, in our index. They're investing in research and development. They've got some world-class infrastructure. Um, they've got an increasingly highly skilled workforce. They've got an efficient government. So if you look at the traditional drivers of development, China's really got a lot of those firmly in place. Um, but when we think about the disruptive forces which are going to be hitting the global economy in the next 10, 20 years, China faces some significant challenges. The most obvious one striking right now is protectionism, bad for China's exports, bad for China's capacity to learn from foreign technology. Um, looking further forward, China's one of the most exposed countries in the world to climate change. Um, a big population, many of them on the coastline, many of them involved in agriculture. There are some real risks from climate change to China going forwards. And if we dig into the details of what's going on in China's society, um, we also see challenges with relatively high levels of inequality, relatively low levels of social mobility. Um, and if we look around the world, um, in other countries which have had those problems, that's been a medium-term uh, challenge for policymakers to address as well. Tom, let's talk about some of the other rankings because Jason and I loved going through the list. I mean, talk about the countries that are up at the top. You mentioned China is number four, but talk to us just quickly about one, two, and three. One of the big takeaways from this report is that um, catching up is getting harder to do, and we see that reflected in the rankings. Um, so we've got advanced economies like some of the um, some of the northern European economies, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, um, some of the high performing Asian economies like Singapore. Um, and they do really well on the traditional drivers of growth. Um, they also score very well on those disruptive forces. They are well positioned to deal with the rise of the robots. Uh, they've got policies in place to help retrain workers um, as automation takes over a larger share of traditional jobs. They're well positioned on the digital economy. Their consumers, their businesses, their government are all engaged in those digital opportunities. Um, 
they're exposed to protectionism, but they don't have that really high exposure to protectionism that we see in some of the Asian exporters uh, and some of the advanced economies which are breaking their trade ties with the rest of the world. Well, and it is so interesting to look at the top five, just Mm -hmm. running through them, Sweden, Switzerland, Denmark, China, Australia, those are the top five when it comes to the drivers. And they do have this really interesting balance, uh, as you say. And when you think about the five most important economies in some ways, some are there, some aren't. These aren't obvious choices. And that's one of the really uh, provocative things, I think, about this list, ultimately. Yeah. So I think if you look at the if you look at our drivers of growth, if you look at our rankings on the drivers of growth, I think it looks fairly i think it's going to be in line with people's intuitions about which countries are poised for success and which countries face some challenges i think where a lot of the controversy where a lot of the interest where some of the the provocation comes from is in how we're looking at those disruptive forces Mm -hmm. and how those disruptive forces are going to be upsetting the pattern of winners and losers. Well, and I just want to say, so China's in fourth place. The UK is in in sixth place. uh, Germany is in 12th place. United States is in 17th place. Just to sum up, where's the US in all of this in terms of uh, drivers versus disruptors? I mean, the US is engaged in a, uh, a trade war against China, right. a trade war with China. Um, and the motivation for that trade war um, is partly to determine who's going to be holding the keys to the global economy um, in the 21st century, who's going to be the most competitive, who's going to have the most advanced technologies. Um, and part of the motivation on the US side is the concern that China um, is not playing by the global rules. Um, They're not protecting intellectual property. Um, They're forcing Western firms to hand over technology. Um, And if we have a trade war and we win that trade war, um, then those problems will be solved uh, and America will be number one. Well, what our report uh, is telling us is, well, that's all well and good. But there's also a bunch of things you need to do at home to make sure you're competitive for the future. Things like really making sure you've got world-class infrastructure, really making sure you're making significant investments in research and development to retain that competitive technology edge. That's Tom Orlick. He's our chief economist at Bloomberg Economics. This was a really fun conversation because they looked at the entire global economy, very specific factors, and tried to figure out where every nation developed or developing stands when it comes to drivers helping them out or disruptors that might hold them back. Well, and it's a different lens in many Mm -hmm. ways, and not surprisingly, it gives you a different result. And I really liked what he said about China, its role in the global economy. It's obviously important, but when you think about it in this context, I feel like you look at China a little bit differently. So it's clear that global economies, they're watching the political scene around the world. And we've got something Mm -hmm. that will help them. It's this week's new economy issue. Let's get into it with editor Joel Weber here to tell us all about it. It is a great issue and it's another must read, I feel like, for the world at large. Yeah, a lot of this, you know, it's really easy to talk about the news and the short term stuff. But there are bigger, bigger issues that are really going to define what the future looks like. And that's sort of what the new economy issue is really about. 
the, the, the world's growth is really going to come from the emerging economies rather than the d- developed ones. And that's something that Hank Paulson in the intro really hits on. Like the, the problems that, that this issue is really devoted to and the solutions that we hope to really identify at the forum in November are really geared towards uh, solving problems in the emerging markets. And so how do you break that down in some ways into something that mm-hmm. is candidly sort of digestible? You had a lot of help on this one, including from Bloomberg Economics. Yeah, so we actually divide the book up into chapters. It, it actually feels more like a book th- almost than any other issue that we do. And those chapters align with the pillars of the forum. So things like trade, and that, that allows us to talk to Tom Orlick of Bloomberg Economics, who came up with this drivers and disruptors idea to really like rank countries mm-hmm. based on their ability to either disrupt or drive the engine, of, the engine, the global engine of growth, right? And it's interesting. There's some interesting takeaways there. Like the U.S. isn't one that really rises to the cream like some other places. So that's interesting. We, we've been talking about that, that the kind of the top two, top one, two, three, four names you might find a little bit surprising on that Yeah, one. I'm going to save it for the issue. Yeah, do that. Another one <laughs> is inclusion, right? And so yeah. there's different ways that we can talk about that, but one that we chose to look at was, was women in the workforce via fertility. Around the world, we're actually watching fertility rate, the global fertility rate, come down. We're not making enough babies, actually. So we actually pulled out some case studies via data and also women in various countries to talk about why don't you have more babies? And that impacts their ability to, to work, right. what their family life's like. And then that translates into economic growth. Because if, if you're not having future generations behind you, we just simply don't have enough people. Some really big issues, long-term issues tackled in this very special issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Disruption in transportation has another factor to consider, a backlash against cars and a technology whose time may have come and gone. Very provocative thought. It is. And, you know, we love talking about transportation and cities, all the implications, very close to home here at Bloomberg. Max Chafkin, features editor for the magazine, is here with us. Superblocks. Didn't know that was a thing, but it makes sense when you start to explain it. So explain it. So Superblocks, actually, it's a a very old thing. Um, If you look at kind of 50s style, public housing, uh, you know, basically a lot of the, the sort of urban thought uh, that was going on, you know, in the 40s and 50s, was this idea of building these giant towers with like big roads around them. And the idea would be that people could sort of walk within these blocks, super blocks. Considered a good thing. Uh, yeah. And, and and people have kind of moved away from that. We've we've much we've moved to these cities with little grids and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, the, the story that we have in this week's issue is about a town in northern Spain uh, called Vitoria Gast- Gastes. Hope I'm saying that right. Um, and it's um, it's basically a town where they just started radically getting rid of streets with cars. The the, the town has created 63 of these super blocks, um, and these are streets where basically cars are not allowed. The only way to have a car is if you live on the street or if you're a business and you're getting a delivery. And the cars can only go 10 kilometers an hour, six which is miles, right? Yeah, six miles, miles an hour. An hour. It's, it's a jog. I mean, it's or not a jog. It's uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a it's it's a sort of pedestrian scale pace, and everything else, you know, as the writer uh, Wes and Zena uh, describes, you know, very poetically in the story is basically cyclists, pedestrians, children, you have, you know, toddlers running about. It's it, it's really a kind of like car-free paradise, at least if that's your kind of paradise. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Tell us about the guy who's behind it, right? Because he's really led the charge here. Yeah, Salvador Rueda, who's a, uh, a Spanish urban planner, and he has done these kind of super block conversions in, in a bunch of cities in Spain, including Barcelona. Uh, and also, he's he's done a little bit of work in, in South America, in uh, Quito, Ecuador, as well as Buenos Aires. There's even a plan uh, in, in Washington uh, to uh, Seattle, sorry, uh, to bring uh, super blocks there, although that's still kind of in discussions. Uh, the interesting thing is... Seattle is Washington. Washington is Seattle. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing uh, about this is he's had a lot more success in Spain. I mean, in, especially in this town, Vitoria Gastez, which he calls his laboratory. This is like proof that this concept can work. But is it just prime in terms of the t- way that, that kind of that locale is set up? I think bit. it has to do. It's it's partly cultural. Okay. And, you know, these cities in Spain are, are very small. They 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 are very much pedestrian oriented. You know, Europe. Most of these cities were laid out pre automobile. You go to a place like Buenos Aires, which you know, obviously the 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 city was laid out before the car. But that, that's a city that is way more dependent on cars. You know, much like a, a, an American city. Right. And and there, it's been a lot more controversial. You you've had sort of complaints. Uh, they, they've they've managed to pull it off in a few neighborhoods, but not in the kind of scale that they've been able to do in Spain. Um, what's, what's really provocative here to me anyway is just that this does not cost a lot of money, as, as uh, Rueda points out in the story. I mean, you don't really have to, um, you know, you're not demolishing anything. You're, right. you're basically just telling people they can't drive their cars <laughs> on the street. So it's, it's, more, it's almost like a cultural solution to the problem of climate change and also traffic deaths. And so what's the downside you know, it, obviously, folks are relying on cars. You think about a lot mm-hmm. of American cities where the commutes have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. People are trying to move into cities, and yet cities in many cases aren't affordable. Right. So how do all those things balance out? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of key downsides. One downside is maybe you just don't want to live like this. I mean, you know, having a car is really convenient. It's a big part of how, uh, in, in a lot of parts of the world, you know, sort of people relate to their surroundings. Um, and then there's the sort of gentrification issue. Uh, you, you start kind of creating these like beautiful urban islands, and we've seen this in, in lots of places, including the U.S., and, and real estate prices go up, and then the people who live there are, you know, forced to leave. Uh, the, the, the sort of Spanish solution to that is just to put lots of super blocks everywhere so it, it won't, you know, affect the real estate prices too much. Everybody's going to have these things, at least in this, in this one city in Spain. What does it do, though, on society, and what does it do in terms of the environment? Yeah, so... Uh, the 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 uh, Spanish cities that have done this have reported, you know, amazing impacts. We're talking, you know, I, I think we have the number in the story. I believe it's twenty seven percent of the cars uh, on the road in in Victoria Gasteiz are are gone now. Mm. Uh, the the carbon emissions of the city something like down about forty percent, and you have a huge percentage of the population fifty percent walking as their main uh, you know form of transportation. Another fifteen percent biking. So that's like sixty five percent of people are using a non car, you know, method of transport, which is, you know, that's pretty amazing. And when you consider uh, both the sort of carbon emissions of, you know, caused by, you know, automobiles, but also, yeah, the the traffic deaths, it's it's potentially has a huge impact. Well, and presumably the knock-on effect of if people are walking, that's good for their health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are Mm -hmm. all these sort of benefits that come on uh, that may be harder to measure, at least in the near term, but eventually will be much clearer as time goes on. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I have to say what's interesting, though, you see a little bit of that in New York, right? I have a town in uh, – I have a street in our town that's been shut down. And, you yeah. know, so you're slowly seeing it kind of creep around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely trend. a cultural thing. And you alluded to it. I mean, we've – over the last 20 years, there's been this kind of renewed interest in downtowns, which comes with an interest in walking. Um, one other thing about this Spanish town that's pretty interesting is it's a huge car town. It's it's the Love second – I believe yeah. it's the second uh, biggest car manufacturing city in Spain. There's a Mercedes factory factory in town. There's a Michelin plant in town. So this is a city where uh, cars are really part of the, at least the business culture and, and, their, and their sense of identity. And even so, it, it's embraced this kind of solution. Um, as uh, Wes writes in the story, you know, even the taxi driver's union is in favor of this. And, and wow. you sort of imagine, you know, if you're, if you're driving a car for a living, that this is not going to be something you're into. But, but they managed to really get, you know, bipartisan support, both from the, the unions and kind of the, the center-right party. And he's building more, right, around the world. He's trying, he's and, trying. and we'll see if the you know if, if people are willing to go for it. That's Max Chafkin. He's our features editor, and he took us through the world's super blocks. You know, we see a little bit of this, I feel like, in New York City, where streets are being closed down, and they're basically for pedestrian traffic. But if you look at some cities around the world, it's not just a few blocks. It's a much larger footprint. Well, and you do wonder, having read this and talked to Max about it, whether this is something that's going to catch on as mm-hmm. we go forward. Some of these experiments have delivered some surprising results. So interesting to see where it goes from here. Check out this week's issue of the magazine. You'll find an interview with the co-founder of Infosys, who returned to his company two years ago following a scandal and firing of the then CEO. Right. This is a guy very much at the center, Mm -hmm. as you say, of arguably one of the most important companies, certainly in India. And part of the conversation is about expanding that reach, both for his company and beyond. We're talking about Nandan Nilakani. Jeff Muskus is here, the technology editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. This guy's pretty provocative (laughs) when it comes to his vision for the world. Tell us about him. Yeah, he's he co-founded Infosys in the early '80s and um, has been with the company in a number of top roles for much of that time, including as uh, CEO for much of the early aughts before uh, 2009 when he left to join the Indian government uh, in a, a newly created position to help develop uh, Adhar, this uh, sort of national biometric ID program that's proven highly controversial for reasons you might imagine. Wow, you kind of like skimmed over that. That's a big <laughs> deal, right? I mean, that he created that. It was big in terms of its impact on India, but you're right; it's very controversial. Yeah, the uh, the this kind of biometric data slash national ID card program is now used as uh, Nilkani points out in the interview with our reporter Sritha Rai by you know some 1.2 billion Indians for things including uh, social security payments right. and uh, and baseline ID in all kinds of ways that um, didn't really exist in a stratified way in India a decade ago. Um, you know, but that's that's proven uh, you know controversial among privacy advocates because the system is proven uh, relatively ripe for uh, abuse. It's, it's easier to fool than you might think. Um, Has it been abused? And uh, and and yeah, there's, there, yeah. there's there are ongoing concerns about. Um, the degree to which people's uh, data, including their biometric data, uh, might be used for nefarious purposes. Well, and between that job and working <laughs> on that and, you know, now his day job and the company he founded, Infosys, it really takes us into the heart of arguably some of the biggest issues of our time mm-hmm. as it relates to, as you say, privacy, as it relates to technology and its role in our lives. What did he have to say about things like 
for instance, artificial intelligence, because that plays into this as well. Sure. Um, yeah, AI, uh, along with uh, uh, big data in general, which is sort of the, our, our buzzword for AI before we started using AI, um, was the, you know, the, the big differentiator in his mind um, between uh, various companies in the IT outsourcing space like Infosys as they've tried to uh, approach the big cloud companies and uh, the other you know, big uh, industry leaders around the world who try to sort of differentiate themselves by figuring out as much about their customers as possible. So that also raises, you know, privacy issues on the other end, as you might imagine, that, um, uh, you know, the, the differentiator here uh, in, in the industry's mind is uh, how much more they can figure out about uh, a given company's customer base, for example, than they might have been able to a decade ago, um, but without particularly going into a ton of detail about how they get that information. Why did you want to talk to him? No, I mean, it's like, I think about it. You go back to when this company was first created. I mean, mm. we used to talk about Infosys a lot. I feel like sure. we don't talk about it as much anymore. And I do understand there was a scandal a couple of years ago. I mean, but why? I mean, he's got a back page of the magazine. Why mm. him and why him now? Well, he's been a pretty central figure in India's uh, tech space for, you know, much of the past half century and, and all the more so now that he's, you know, played a leading role in the development of this program and then sort of gone back into the, the corporate world to try and and, um, and write the ship to varying degrees at the company he helped start. Uh, but you're right that um, Infosys, uh, like the other uh, leading IT outsourcers in India, I think was a much bigger part of the conversation mm-hmm. uh, even just a few years ago um, when the question, a lot of the questions about uh, America's tech scene revolved around H-1Bs and right. the degree to which perhaps right. uh, immigrant labor was being used to, uh, to by big tech companies in America to keep prices or wages artificially lower than they might otherwise be. Um, you know, in the Trump era, the conversation has shifted as uh, you know the Trump administration has made good on on some of its uh, of its threats to crack down on H one B use in general, but mm-hmm. you know it's also shifted the conversation around uh, immigration and wages, and of course big tech as well as uh, you know the fallout from the twenty sixteen election has, has put the industry in a much different focus. And that's Jeff Muskus. He had some important context about that conversation with Infosys co founder Nandan Nilakani. And one of the things I really appreciated about that was. Yeah. The importance of that business, that industry in India, but also India's coming influence Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Where that country goes next is going to have a profound impact on the global economy. Right. We talked about the startup scene and where it's going. So really good to get his insight. Susan Lyons' career has spanned publishing, multimedia, and venture capitalism. She's the former president of ABC Entertainment. She oversaw AOL.com. Jason, she has done so much. Now she's in the world of VC, all in on that. She's president and founder of BBG Venture. So we had a lot to talk about. It's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Let's listen in. Your career has spanned so many different industries and multimedia. I think about publishing, venture capitalism. I want to ask you, there's so much going on in these worlds. What is it that you find kind of interesting in terms of disruptive trends right now? Oh, wow. Um, I know it's broad, but I just am curious. There are so many things and they, um, they fall into a couple of categories. So I still think that there are a lot of industries that are um, that have not been disrupted. Actually, healthcare is probably the biggest opportunity that exists right now. Right. Uh, there are still so many consumer unfriendly parts of of the healthcare journey. 
Um, and everybody, every single group at the table believes that we need to have new solutions, whether it's insurers or it's, mm -hmm. it's healthcare providers or it's consumers. Um, so that's always a good moment to be, be investing. And we're actually seeing a lot of, I think, more interesting models for delivery of either mental health care or, or physical health care um, that will need to scale to prove themselves out but could be very viable over time. Well, and I looked at your investment portfolio. I mean, Susan, you guys are in a lot of different areas. You're in retail, um, you're in you know, property, you're in so many different areas. In terms of healthcare, what are some of the new models that you're seeing, or what are some of the interesting opportunities that you find that you want to commit money to? Yeah, that you have well, been? we've made a couple of, of investments. We're in a company called Spring Health that takes over healthcare uh, coverage for employees. So they sell to companies, they say, let us do this for you. Mm -hmm. We will be able to get your employees to the right kind of care faster than you could possibly do it. And they do that using algorithms. They have a great database um, and they can both save companies money and at the same time, they can get employees the care they need so much faster that uh, it's a, a real bonus for the company culture. How difficult do you think, though, it is to kind of untangle the existing healthcare infrastructure? I think this is such a tough one, and I think it's why you're not seeing it. Yeah. One of the you know earlier cases of disruption. So how how much, you know, the traditional healthcare companies that we have today will be ultimately five years, ten years? They're not going to be the major players because there's companies like the ones that you're investing in. Um, or do they adapt? I think it completely depends on which part of this you're talking about. So I think the insurers are probably not going to change in, yeah. the, in the short term, but I think they are looking for more cost-effective and more successful solutions to a lot of different issues for consumers. Um, so they're actually aligned with, with all of us. Right. If you can find the right... Uh, product for them. If you can find something that you can show them, you're spending X now, we can do this for Y, and you're going to save money. So uh, I think there are, there are definitely alliances to be made. Um, it, yeah. One of the biggest issues has been how slow it is to get change at, um, at large healthcare institutions whether they're hospitals or yeah. they're, um, but there are far fewer providers. And so, and by that I mean insurance providers, uh, that it's probably easier if you can find an alliance with them. Now, there are also a lot of companies that are starting clinics and new models for delivery of either women's health care right. or um, or prenatal and postpartum care. They're taking some piece of this and they're saying, we can do this 100% better. Um, and so I, I think it'll take time for those to scale up, but 
as startups, a lot of them are doing very well. Right, and when it starts to show um, an impact on bottom lines or something, it's very yeah. easy for them to ramp up. I have to ask you about the media world, because yes. I feel like there's so much going on. You're the former president of ABC Entertainment. Streaming Wars 2020, yep. we're already laying it out in Business Week magazine. This is going to be one of the big themes yep. to watch. Um, who, who will you be watching? There's Disney Plus, there's Apple yeah. Plus, Comcast's got Peacock, HBO's got a new entry. Yeah. What do you think's interesting? Well, I think Disney's really interesting. Now, I'm, I'm probably biased because I worked at the company for a decade. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but I do think they have unique assets, and yeah. that's one of the things Iger has done that I think has been incredibly smart. Um, if you look at the movie business that Disney has because of the companies they've acquired, because of Pixar, because of Marvel, um, because of the Star Wars franchise. Right. Uh, they have, you know, I'm going to say more than half of the uh, billion dollar films that have come out in the last five years. Right. Uh, and with big now, audiences who want to see it exactly, again and again, perhaps. Exactly. Uh, and who who know the franchise, right? So right. so they don't have to hear a long description of it before they know. Hey, I want to I want to watch this. Um, and now with Fox, mm -hmm. they have an even bigger right. library. So I I think they're going to be hard to beat among the new entrants. Right. And they're um, coming out pretty inexpensively. I think it's like are. six ninety nine. So it's easy yeah. to kind of tack that on. Absolutely. Um, is cable dead? or getting slowly towards that. I mean, there's still like 80 yeah, million US cable subscribers, but what what happens? You know, I think it's gonna take time, but I look at my children, yeah, and they are not cable customers. Yeah. So uh, this is largely a generational shift. Uh, I think that, uh, that people who have kind of grown up with digital assets and who understand how to use Apple TV and how to use Roku and can put together their own, you know, what would have been a cable assortment, right? right? They can do that themselves for a lot less money. Do their own bundling. Exactly. Although some say that you could ultimately see a bundling of streaming services down the road. Do you think that's I think like that's very possible. Yeah. Why not, right? So what about building a brand in this environment? You did it with Lifetime. You did it so well. It was a very clear message, ramped up, was is so successful. Yeah. Can we do that again today? Building I, a brand like that? Uh, on television? Yeah. In the, in the, the broadcast or, yeah. or, or cable world? I think you can. I think that... Tougher, though? Um, yes, it's definitely tougher, but it all comes down to programming, to be honest. Yeah. Um, if you look at how every single one of the cable networks became successful, it's because they had a single show that defined what they were about, right? Um, for, for HBO, it was The Sopranos. Right. For, uh, uh, for FX, it was Mad Men. Right, right. Um, for, uh, for Showtime. You yeah. can go through all right, of them. Right, but you're right. So you, you knew what you were getting. You did. And then, once they realized they had an audience for that, right. they could begin to develop shows that had a similar feel or were for a similar group of people. And the, the great thing about cable always was that it was not about the number of people watching. It was about the passion of the people who were watching. So if they really, really, really loved a show, right. that meant more than having an extra million people viewing it. 
because well, it made it that much harder for a cable carrier to kick them off. Right. Because they'd have power. a revolution. Right, right. And I also do think, like, in today's social media world where there's so much data collection, you had a very clear identity. Absolutely. So if you were trying to market it to yeah. advertisers, right, you knew exactly yeah. what you're getting. So I think you're going to see that with yeah. the new streaming services, too, where initially <clears throat> a single show or a single series is going to define what this one is all about. And that's going to be what people kind of choose their sides with. Um, I'm not sure if you got to watch any of Mark Zuckerberg today up I on Capitol Hill. He yeah. talked a lot about Libra. It was the House yep. Financial Services Committee. What do you think will happen to social media going forward and these big players? Or, or um, how do you see it? Should they be broken up in your view? I, I feel like I am not really the person to answer that question, but I do believe that there is too much power in too few uh, platforms at this moment, and uh, that's always dangerous. So whether they get regulated, whether they get broken up, that's for other people to decide, but I don't think you can leave things the way they are where where a single platform like mm -hmm. Facebook right. um, has the power that it does. That was Susan Line, president and founder of BBG Ventures. For the full interview with Susan Line, check out our Bloomberg Extra podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Get that at iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It is on newsstands now. And we'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>